In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Today is Easter Day, and it is not only a day, but a season in the church. So we have 49 days, uh, 7 times 7, a week of weeks, in order to meditate upon the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have time to contemplate what His resurrection means, to study it in the Scriptures, and to uh, learn how we are supposed to now live as a people with a resurrected God who look forward to our own resurrection and our own life in the kingdom of God now established. We start by the need for a Savior, the need for redemption, the need for us to be uh, redeemed and brought out of sin and wickedness. And no better place for us to start than with the prophet Isaiah, who lives at a time much like our own. The prophet Isaiah looked around the nation of Israel and he saw that uh, a golden era had passed, that uh, better days had gone by, that the Lord had redeemed his people. He had brought them out of Egypt and he had brought them into the promised land. He had raised up great leaders like Moses and Joshua. He had established his kingdom with uh, King David and he had established the, the tabernacle where God would dwell with mankind in the Holy of Holies at Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then this fabric of society begins to break apart as the people turn each to their own way, as they fall back into the sin that they had been saved from, as the uh, religious leaders and the political leaders walk away from the commandments of God and the fabric of society itself starts to fray and pull apart. And Isaiah calls out from the midst of that, from the midst of that destruction, of that sin, of that terror, and says, Awake, O God, awake. He calls the Lord to again act as he has acted before, to again bring the people out of sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. And he calls upon the Lord to do this by his own arm, by his own strength. It's not God's people who save themselves. It's not God's people who learn some new morality or who um, have to give extra energy to, to their attention, uh, to their prayers or to their zeal. But it is God himself who saves. And Isaiah in chapter 51, starting at verse 9, says, O arm of the Lord, awake, as in days of old, as in days long ago, he is calling on the Lord to act as he did in the time of the Exodus. And we have this Exodus imagery here. We have uh, the, the sea dried up, the, the waters of the great deep, the path in the sea that we remember from that, that Exodus over the Red Sea where the Lord dries the waters and he leads his people into safety. We have this language that we see in the Psalms and which we see in Job about this, uh, this terror, this dragon, this great serpent, this evil one who is attacking his people. And here he names that serpent Rahab. It's spelled, unfortunately, like the name of the woman in Joshua, Rahab, 
who you remember saves the people in Jericho, but this is a different name entirely. Rahab is this dragon, this symbol of Egypt, this symbol of sin, this symbol of the temptation of this world that would lead us away, that would uh, whisper to us to follow the devices and desires of our own hearts. And he is saying, pierce that dragon, destroy it, destroy those temptations. And this is what we have been practicing and meditating upon in the Lenten season that is now past. We have been fighting our own temptations and we've been asking the Lord to to take them away, to save us from them. And now we have these two actions that the Lord does. He uh, ransoms and he redeems. He ransoms and he redeems. The Lord offers himself as a ransom. He offers his own life as a ransom. He redeems us by his incarnation, by becoming man, by joining his divinity to our humanity, and by establishing the kingdom of heaven. This is how he redeems us, by again coming to dwell with us and live with us as he has always promised. From the Garden of Eden, to the tabernacle in the wilderness, to the temple in Jerusalem, to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who joins heaven and earth. His desire is to redeem and restore us, to abide with us. And this is what Isaiah calls, he says, The Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. He will bring the ransomed with him to Zion. So his desire is to abide with his people, to live with them in this place of gladness and joy, an everlasting gladness. And they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So we are promised that the Lord will live with us and dwell with us, and that we will have all joy in our living with him. And this has been made radically apparent to us in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the apostles struggled to understand how it was that Jesus was establishing this kingdom. He continually through the Gospels is talking to them about the kingdom of God. And they sometimes think he's talking about a political kingdom. They sometimes talk, think he's talking about uh, you know, kicking out the Romans and removing Herod and reestablishing you know, the kingdom of David with soldiers and armies. And then they think that he's talking about maybe some new uh, kind of religion, some new way of worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem. And when he dies, all that hope seems to go away they had no expectation of his resurrection even though he had been telling them that for weeks and he had been saying over and over again that he would rise on the third day when the women go to the tomb and they go and proclaim that the lord is risen to the apostles what is their response an idle tale they didn't believe it This is sometimes missed by uh, people who just read the Gospels, maybe at a cursory distance, or maybe even don't take the time to read them at all, and think that we practice some kind of an ancient religion where people were just rising from the dead all the time, and it was no big deal for these foolish old ancient people to believe in resurrection. That's clearly not the case from the Gospels at all. They knew that when people died, they stayed dead. They weren't expecting Jesus to rise again. Otherwise, when they came and said he's not in the tomb, the apostles would have said, well, of course he isn't. He told us he would rise from the dead. But this isn't their reaction at all. They're shocked and can't understand what's happened. And of course, the angels talk to the women and they say, why are you seeking the dead, the living among the dead? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Don't you know that he has done what he promised that he would do? Here in Acts chapter, excuse me, in Luke chapter 24, the angel in verse 6 says, He is not here, but has risen. He has risen. 
And they remind him, they remind the women that he would be crucified and on the third day rise. And when the angels tell them this, then suddenly the women remember those words. They remember the promises that Jesus had made. What an incredibly strange thing, again, for those that would think not only that the ancients were foolish and had resurrections happening all the time, which of course they didn't, but then think that somehow this is a, a conspiracy or a tale told to, to lead the people into some kind of a, a subversive political movement. The last people you would have chosen for such a thing as that would be women, right? They couldn't give testimony in court. They couldn't be legal witnesses. And yet who does God choose to be his first witnesses? He chooses these women to become apostles to the apostles, to be the ones who first go and tell the story of the resurrection. That's who the Lord chooses to be at the tomb and to proclaim the good news to the apostles. Like everything in his redemption story, the Lord takes what we would expect the world as we think it's going to be and he flips it on its head just what the Virgin Mary said right he has uh, uh, taken down the proud and lifted up the meek he has brought down mountains and lifted up valleys he has given witnesses to give testimony that we could hardly believe he would choose and so they go and they proclaim as apostles to the apostles the risen Lord the question for us then once we believe that he is resurrected, is what does that mean? What does that change? And sometimes, unfortunately, what we've thought that this means is that we would one day be resurrected, although we're not really sure what that means, and that we simply need to wait for the second coming or wait for these bodies to decay, and then we'll be in heaven with the Lord in the sweet by and by, and it's going to be this kind of simple, blissful state. And yet that isn't what happens to the church at all. The church goes into action. The church starts living as the kingdom of God. This church starts to live in this resurrected life, in this new way of understanding the world. And Peter and the other apostles are activated to start to bear witness to the world, to call people to repent and to salvation. And we see that in Acts of the Apostles chapter 10. You remember that chapter 10 is a very, very important uh, place in the Acts of the Apostles. Because before this time, uh, it had been primarily uh, Jews, right, who had uh, received the Lord. And they had been preaching and teaching in the temple, praying in the temple precincts. And it had been Jews that had come. You remember on the day of Pentecost, it's the Jews who had come for the, for the Pentecost feast, right, that uh, received the Holy Spirit. But here when Peter is praying and he's fasting and he's sitting up on that roof, you remember that he receives this vision to go with the men uh, that are sent to him. And at this knock at the door, he finds people that he had not wanted to find. He finds Gentiles. These are the last people that Peter would want to go and preach the gospel to. Peter had two good reasons to not preach to Cornelius in his house. Number one, he's a Roman centurion. In other words, he's an occupying enemy, right? Peter is a good and faithful Jew. The kingdom of God to him had meant before this that like the Maccabees, the Romans would be kicked out. That these, uh, these powers 
uh, these foreign powers would be kicked out. So to go to the house of a Roman centurion and preach the gospel to him was ridiculous before that knock on the door. The second reason that he wouldn't want to go is because Cornelius is a Gentile. He would not want to enter into his home. He couldn't enter into a home where they would be uh, living these impure ways and eating impure foods and not keeping the Torah. To go into his house would be to, to desecrate himself. So he's called now to go to an enemy who's living a filthy, desecrated life. And Peter's obedient and he goes into the home and Cornelius tells him who he is and the story that he has heard. And Peter's eyes are now opened. Even though now it's been years since the Lord has been resurrected, even though Pentecost has come and the Holy Spirit, Peter is now coming into a fuller understanding of what this kingdom of God means. He says, oh, now I see it's those who, two things, fear God and do what's right. Those who fear God and do what's right. Those are the people that we're going to go and preach to. It's not about who their parents are. It's not about the food that they eat. It's not about the jobs that they have. We're supposed to be proclaiming the kingdom of God to all people who will hear. Those who would fear God and desire to do what's right. When they have those things, we will proclaim the gospel and we will enlighten them as to what has happened. And so uh, Peter shares that. And he shares some very interesting things about the resurrection. You'll notice that a key feature he includes is that Jesus ate and drank with those that he appeared to because this is what it means to live with people this is what it means to abide with people to be family it means that we eat and drink together that's what we do as family that's why when we come to this table we're coming as a family we're coming as the family of God to eat and drink together because that's what Christ did when he appeared to his apostles and to all those who would believe for 40 days he appeared to them and we have so many different ways that we see him eating breakfast on the seashore of galilee or eating in the upper room with them right breaking bread with those in the road to emmaus he's continually joining and abiding with them and this is the promise of god right uh, he ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us Right? So now he says, not only is he living with us, but he's giving us a mandate, a commandment, a way in which we're supposed to be the kingdom of God. And this isn't for a select few, this is for all the people of God, right? To preach to the people, to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead, that all the prophets bear witness. So we read the Holy Scriptures, right? The Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, that this is He who bears witness that everyone believes in Him, who believes in Jesus in this new kingdom, will receive forgiveness of his sins. In other words, you're recognizing that you have sin and that you need forgiveness in a Savior. And this is the work of the church. Those murbearing women. In chapter 8, you remember, they were introduced to us. The most unlikely group. You remember that one of them had been weeping over Jesus' feet when he goes in to eat with Simon the Pharisee. And you remember that Jesus says, Simon, you didn't offer me water for my feet. You didn't give me anything to, to wash myself. But this woman, since I've come in, has not stopped weeping and washing my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And the Pharisees and those around him say, if he knew what kind of a woman she was, right? 
prostitutes, those who had been filled with demons, those who had been sick, those who had been outcast from society. That's who these women are. That's these burbearing women. And why were they the first ones at the tomb? Because they had watched our Lord. They had sat and waited and watched and yearned and desired and hungered to be there to care for his body because of the way that he had healed them, because of the love that he had shown them, the love that they had in their hearts was so great because as Jesus had said in Simon's home, who would love the more? Those who had been forgiven a little or those who had been forgiven much? These ladies had been forgiven much and they loved much. And this is why we've spent 40 days contemplating our sin, recognizing what Christ has removed from our lives so that we would be so glad, so thankful, so full of rejoicing that we too would stand ready to see our risen Lord and to follow his commandment that all would know that forgiveness is available to them in his name. Christ is risen. Lord is risen indeed.